It isn't a game, Claudia. It has never been a game. I'm Chris Spivey. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today we talk about Robotech, the macro Macross saga on genreless. Welcome to season two, everybody. Um, remarkably Ooh. enough, the the Bat Cave is much the same. Although we did get rid of some of the old starships and replace them with super cool transforming starships. They're 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 a little chunkier, but they have way more weapons this time. But they're infinitely more toyetic than the other ones. Because <laughs> really, this is going to be all about selling toys. What wasn't for cartoon for cartoons aimed at kids in the eighties and nineties. That's true. That's true. And and really, that's interesting because that's like a whole topic unto itself about how cartoons started to sell toys and eventually the toy push started to shape the cartoons. It, it's a whole fascinating cultural shift. The the joy about doing Robotech is that, um, for one, it's Robotech. And this will be mm-hmm. my putting, putting on my game designer and publisher hat for just a, a brief second saying, Robotech is one of the IPs that I, as a creator, would love to get my groupie protuberances on mm-hmm. to create and like tell stories that are publishable and have other people read in that setting. It is mm-hmm. immense. It is expansive and deep and meaningful. And that wasn't something that America was ready for at the time in the 80s when they brought it across. No, absolutely not. There were Japanese imported cartoons prior to Robotech, but to my understanding, this is the first one that really took the serialization seriously and tried to at least capture the depth of what was going on culturally in Japanese cartoons at the time, even though obviously, as we'll talk about, couldn't the wasn't the exact line for line translation. So the big thing is, how do we really want to start this season and much less just this season? How do we want to start potentially one of the most epic animes that helped shaped young American culture? Like, I think this was one of the first ones with a serialized format, how you're talking about that did that. Mm-hmm. That is astounding. Mm-hmm. Um, do we want to talk about like Harmony Goal itself? Do we want to talk about they took three vastly different series from different years and different universes and sort of meld them all into one Frankensteinian creature that <laughs> surpassed anything that I had seen as a child and almost still to today. I mean, really, that, that I think it's, that's a good place to start because really, um, when we're talking about this, I think it is not overstating to say that we would not have the explosion of anime the way we understand it now today in the U.S. if it wasn't for Carl Masek. And he's the one who brought that all is, these different together. That is still just so unreasonable. Like I even think, if memory serves, he was a, a teacher at a university and the kid and the students there sort of introduced him to anime. And from mm-hmm. there, he started like selling anime prints. And then he was contacted by Harmony Gold who said, hey, we're thinking about doing this thing. And they mentioned Macross to him. And mm-hmm. he's like, that's a super popular anime. You guys are going to do great. And he got a job just on knowing about what anime was and then became, I'm not going to say a guru, but sort of helped birth this thing that we're going into. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the things, because like you said, um, this is three shows kind of uh, stitched together and admittedly much better than I expected them to stitch together. And I think we'll kind of talk about that maybe when we get into the second season. But um, one of the reasons why Robotech is the way it is, is because in the 80s, syndication required a minimum of 65 episodes so that they could do five episodes a week for 13 weeks. And so that was the magic number. And most anime, much like today, honestly, um, they tended to be around 35-ish to 52-ish is generally the range. So so they're all a bit short of this original syndication goal because when a television station wanted to buy a block of television time, they wanted to do it in four chunks, right? They, they, they buy per quarter. So they didn't want to have to buy a show and then buy a different show to fill in a gap. They wanted to spend one amount of money 
to pay for that time slot. That time slot was covered for the quarter, so they didn't have to think about that time slot again. That was how syndication worked. So, in or- so Carl knew that Harmony Gold would need to have a longer series. And so, from what I understand in my research, he did the extra work to actually find shows that were at least somewhat compatible. And with a somewhat similar art style. Mm-hmm. And then they sort of took and ran with that to meld them all into one, we'll say, cohesive story by having it be a generational tale that sort of followed this ongoing war. Mm-hmm. By doing that, they enabled them to use each series as sort of like a break and then pick back up and having one or two tangential lines that sort of linked everything together. And they also created specific, a few episodes that were then specifically tailored to make sure there was an overlap, which we'll touch on as we go into some of the episodes that we talk about themselves. Mm -hmm. But I have to take this break now just to do this because you said the name enough that I now have to say, Carl, 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 (laughs) Carl. For for all of our our Walking Dead fans out there, you can just imagine Uh. Rick shouting for Carl, Carl, (laughs) endlessly. Oh yeah, yeah. It, 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 one of the the fun parts of the show is sometimes like, the research itself does not necessarily drive people. Also having fun with the material. So yeah, sometimes it's like, oh, this is, oh, this is entertaining. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's almost weird to talk about Robotech because it's such. We said at the end of last episode that the point of this season was to talk about not. Mechanomy from a Japanese perspective, but from an American perspective. And while there were shows evolving giant robots before Robotech, um, this was the first one that just exploded. This is that really captured the zeitgeist in a way that really wouldn't happen again until Gundam Wing in 2000. Um, so it's like for 15 years, this when people in America thought of anime the even the casual member of the of, people who weren't like necessarily deep into that fandom you know, even casual viewers go oh yeah that's a japanese cartoon they, they would know that, that where that cartoon came from they would know that style and they would think robotech robotech really made that pop culture awareness of it much much bigger the, again there were other shows that were kind of moving that space too i mean voltron comes like just a year before this um and then also it was a strong thing transformers is kind of its own thing, and we're not going to go into Transformers because it's it's a lot, and I can go on for hours about Transformers. Um, so, but we, now, but we now have to though touch on the fact that Transformers, one of their big things was the Energon Cube, and when they made Robotech, they changed the meaning of Protoculture to be sort of an energy source that linked all the way throughout the Robotech series, which mm-hmm. in, has you wondering. Did the Transformers take the idea of the Energon Cubes from the protoculture? So I, I feel like I, since we've brought it up, I had to at least cover this. Um, there was, in fact, a litigious conflict between these two shows uh, because Hasbro bought the mold for the Veritech and had put out a Skyfire at the same time that Robotech was putting out the Veritech. And Due to the way the licensing worked, is my understanding is that they were non-exclusive licenses because they never expected these either of these to be big. So uh, when they came to America, they each had to prove that they were distinct enough that they could merit legal protection. Because otherwise, it would be okay. Then both companies can sell exactly the same toy, and that's just not a, a you don't want that path as a toy as a toy manufacturer. Um, and so. Uh, Skyfire, uh, Skyfire slash Jetfire um, was removed. There's a head change. There's a model change. Skyfire came back. Then there was a re-release, and that provoked a whole other round of, of lawsuits. Um, and it, it, it's 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 fascinating because Transformers itself, much like Robotech, um, is a bunch of different toy lines that were all jammed together and branded as one group. So so it has the same kind of let's take bits and pieces of things and put them together and unify them as one brand. So so when I was doing you know, research in this, we were talking about how um, Robotech actually came as toys first through um, a model kit company. And again, they had licensed a lot of different things and branded them under this one name. 
you have to understand this is a, a pretty common practice, and we'll see it again as we go throughout the season. It really wasn't until the 90s that America started to recognize each of these as having its own distinct flavor and uh, value as properties. It was really, no, we have to get a bunch of things jammed together because we need volume. We, we don't know how well it's going to do. We're hoping that something in, within it will hit. But it did because it was such a wild west, if you will, of trying to grab different properties and, and, and make use of them. There were these strange overlaps like Skyfire slash the Veritech. So I, I can't say that that wasn't happening. I mean, I, I, I'm more likely to inclined to think it was just kind of mutual uh, you know, it, kind of mutual creation because the energy crisis was still looming in people's minds in the early 80s. Um, uh, you know, the, the war for oil was kind of kicking into high gear at that point. So energy as a concern was something that I think was on a lot of people's minds. So it could be they just developed them simultaneously. But with all of this stuff going around, it's not possible that maybe someone in Transformers writing room saw an early Robotech script or something and said, oh, that's a cool idea and used it. I'm going to go the more conspiratorial route, much how <laughs> with the Marvel DC Wars where Marvel would have people in DC's writing room and then DC would try to have people in Marvel's writing rooms. I'm going to say the Transformer <laughs> folks snuck someone into the Robotech room to find out about it and then took the idea to run with it. And then the Robotech folks had someone in the Transformers room and say, hey, we hadn't thought of doing it like that. And then they did their thing too. So, you know what, conspiratorial forces. That, that's not possible because there was a lot of overlap in cartoon writing at the time because soon after this year starts like when you get into 96 97 when these cartoons start exploding in popularity um then there had a lot of hiring writer but at the time there was just really maybe 30 or 40 writers that were moving around between cartoons a lot so they were all freelancers you know so i mean they would hey i'll write a script for you and write a script for you and write a script for you um and you can even see some writers would recycle their scripts. So like there's an episode of Transformers and the plot is almost identical to it. An episode of Tra- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles um, because the writer's just like, well, I'll just polish off the script and resell it. Why not? Um, <laughs> so it, it's not really possible that someone may have tried to just peddle the same idea to two different companies. So we, we've delved a little bit in the Transformers, probably more than you wanted to, but I felt that we needed to at least touch on that part yeah. of it before Mm -hmm. we can move forward and for folks that want to go back and do some actual homework the original three series themselves that were sort of meld together to form robotech for us americans were super dimension fortress macross that was from 1982 super dimension calvary southern cross from 1984 and then they sort of jump back in time a little bit to get genesis climber moss peta from 1983 Mm -hmm. So they even shows you the different years, the different animes and everything else. So they sort of form together to make Robotech. And they're all from the same animation studio, right? Yeah. Which I think helped them in the long run because not only was it a one-stop licensing, but also they had very similar styles. So they could look like, oh yeah, these were clearly, people don't know. It's like, oh, those are intended to work together. And then it's not true, but you could, it was like a jarring shift. And that should give you all a great foundation for the start of Robotech. And right before we go into it, though, you've got to talk about the other great part of being an anime fan in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, the different anime fan clubs in the, I know in the US, where Mm -hmm. they would go and they would sort of dub and sub all the different animes that would come over and sort of share them around Mm -hmm. like they were a, a top secret thing where you couldn't tell anyone about it. Right. You'd pass them around through your friends and you'd have these big clunky VHS tapes. Mm-hmm. And you, I remember taking a backpack to school, having maybe like eight or 10 different VHS tapes in it that I would then like trade off to someone else to get what they had. Mm-hmm. And since there was, since it was so hard to acquire. Yeah. And, um, uh, this is partially because, um, uh, the Amiga became very popular as a home computer and people realized they could do, in retrospect, fairly rudimentary video effects, but you can do some de- video editing in the Amiga. Uh, and so people were able to actually do their own subtitling in a way that just wasn't possible even three or four years previously, because otherwise you needed a specific dedicated machine to um, crossfade an image on top of another image inside of a television studio, but now people do this at home. And so, yeah, people would go to Japan get copies or their friends send them copies of, of unsubtitled stuff and then they would subtitle it and share it around but 
also because of the limitations of VHS technology, you would have to make a copy of that in order to add the subtitling. And then you wouldn't want to give that copy away because that's yours. So you make a copy of that to give to your friends. And then that, they would usually make a copy themselves. And so at least when I was doing it, by the time I got to it, it was like five or six generations deep. And so it's like, it's kind of fuzzy and the colors are shifting a bit. And, you know, there's a roll at the top of the screen. And that was just part of the experience at the time, you know. But then you knew that it was good anime, though, if it was that faded, because so many people wanted to get it and see it. Right, exactly. All right. So, Robotech, the, the show itself. We, we've told you the past. We've told you some of the history, the buildup, the, the joy of acquiring the tapes. But the show is basically revolves around this advanced alien ship crash landing on Earth while there's this massive global war transpiring. Mm-hmm. And it stops the war and everyone sort of gets together and starts trying to figure out the alien tech. And it brings a semblance of peace to the world, actually, as they're all working to craft something from this. And that's the start of robotechnology for Earth, for us mm-hmm. Earthers. Mm-hmm. And that happens also, like, really fast. I mean, like, in the time you took to describe it is about how long it takes to show. This is what happens. Like, I was like, is it their ship? And then it happened and the narrator explains it all. And that's actually something else um, is that uh, narration is still even pretty common in anime. And it was something that American cartoons just didn't really do very often in the same way. Well, part uh, of it adds definitely a, no, a sort of noir feel to it because narration was mm-hmm. always a really important element for noir stories. And that adds a different layer of complexity to anything. Yeah, it, it adds to the the epic feel. And also it gives a subtle way of continuity because it's the same narrator throughout all, all the seasons, all all seasons, the entire run of Robotech. It's not one season, but the three different chunks of Robotech. Um, And so it's, you get the sense of this, someone telling this generation's spanning tale. So it's one of those things that like, it was a clunky conceit and it's frankly always been a clunky conceit from a storytelling standpoint, but it worked really well for Robotech because it gave a sense of, like you said, that, um, all of these things that are, that are happening and you're, you're kind of coming in almost in the middle of one story. And then that story goes on to another story and another story. It, it feels very kind of epic in game of Thrones before those concepts were even really in the cultural consciousness. Now you've brought up an interesting thought for me. What is your actual opinion as a creative about um, a narrative voice for different things for TV shows and movies? Um, it depends on what it's being used for. I generally don't find it in modern television to be useful. And when it's being done, if it's being done well, like um, uh, um, the Doom Patrol show, uh, there is a narrator in the Doom Patrol, but there's a reason why that narrator is narrating. And also <laughs> that narrator, without spoilers, has a very distinctive voice. Um, so you're learning about the characters through the narrator. Um, and, and there's multiple layers of things happening. Uh, there are points where the narrator is saying something that's completely jarring with what you're seeing on the screen. That can be interesting. Um, in Robotech and indeed in a lot of the, the anime of the era, um, it's usually done with the, 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 I think the intent is always, we're going to explain slightly complicated concepts to to younger potentially younger audiences so they understand and get caught up. But it can also be a lot of telling, not showing, when it's done badly. Uh, and to Robotech's credit, it's done pretty sparingly. It's usually used pretty heavily just for recaps. So again, this was the time where you couldn't necessarily be assured of watching every episode. So it would lightly recap the important parts going into the episode. So you're aware of it. It would also be used the ends to kind of give you a preview of what's going to happen next episode. Um, and every once in a while it w- it's used to kind of cover up a, a jarring shift and where it's okay. We, we have a, a sudden change of scene and the narrator kind of has to smooth over that transition a bit. Uh, so it's not, bad in this specific show i don't think um it's not nearly as oppressive as, as uh, some other shows uh, some of which we may even cover um but on the flip side it's so easy especially for long-running shows to rely on that and it becomes a crutch so 
it's better to know what you're tending to do with the narration when you go into it. Okay. Because I was just really curious where you're going to fall down on that Harrison Ford, Ridley Scott debate. This is related to Blade Runner for folks about the narration versus no narration. Well, and, and I think it's, that's, and Blade Runner is actually a pretty good example of that because I have seen both versions of Blade Runner and there are points where the narration would actually help you understand what the heck you're watching at times. Um, but Blade Runner has become so well known as a film you could argue about that in retrospect, not having the narration feels better because you want to have an experience of being a movie that is a little opaque. But it was marketed as an action blockbuster. So it makes perfect <laughs> sense that originally it was going to be like, oh, and here's what's happening to people in the audience. Um, because it, 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 it was, oh, I'm going to go see people shoot robots. That'd be awesome. And then now it's, oh, there's actually much more layer and depth here. Um, so let's actually take that crutch out and remove it. Uh, I think in cases like Robotech, you couldn't do that, right? There are certain points where if you take it out, it's it's not confusing for interesting ways. It's just confusing because it's it's not clear what's happening. So I think there, and again, this is a creation of three shows slapped together and sometimes scenes are excised because they were inappropriate or harder to localize for an American audience. Uh, so you have these hard cuts that sometimes you can't always smooth over. So sometimes it just narrate 10 seconds of meanwhile back at the base will solve a lot of problems. <laughs> and so one of the joys about doing the space opera first season and this one is while I was watching Booby Trap and seeing Global sort of like go into the ship as a rebuilding the SDF-1, it gave me flashbacks of Adama on the Battlestar. Yes, there are strong BSG vibes in early Robotech Macross. And so it was interesting to like have those and see what's going on and then also know how the story is going to turn out for the different other similar points. But for booby trap they're sort of like finally get the ship up and running that's where you get a full introduction of the characters primarily you have rick comes in who you find out is sort of a stunt pilot mm -hmm. he's related slash friends with uh roy foker or fokker which should actually i think be fokker because it was the character is sort of a, a tribute to a, a famous dutch inventor i want to say slash pilot mm -hmm. that was helping the germans build or make aircrafts for world war one mm -hmm. and one of the ways that is sort of like highlighted is you'll also see at times rick is playing with like this little biplane biplane toy at different points and that's mm -hmm. also sort of a shout back to that yeah absolutely there's there's definitely world war ii dogfighting vibes again early on in the show at least and one of the big things that still jumped out at me is the relationship between uh, Claudia and Roy, because that in and of itself is huge. It was like an interracial relationship mm -hmm. that is one of, from the primary cast members. Mm -hmm. And it was a, a loving, joking relationship that didn't really diminish either of the characters as much as it could have been done given the time it was created. I think that's an important caveat, but I also don't want it to understate things because uh, like prior to this from, from an American perspective, um, Uhura was like the big step forward, right? And even though we love Michelle Nichols and I think she did a great job, she was still ultimately the person who answered the phone. That was really her role on the Enterprise. And, and I don't want to dismiss that. Claudia had an important role on this show. I mean, she, she's not a main character in the sense of she's always thrust into danger, but she ran the ship pretty much. She was a colleague to a lot of the other people on the ship. She often called the captain on his crap. Uh, so Claudia was a strong character who also had an emotional arc. Uh, so she's an interesting, decently written character. So like even in the context of 1985, but also just in general, you know, she her and her relationship with Roy is is complex, and it's it's not just the oh he's you know I'm married to a guy who's flying he's always put in danger so I'm going to worry about him. No, it's like she's also a soldier. She understands the risks. It doesn't change the fact that um, when you know she's worried about him, and it doesn't change the fact that he's worried about her. But that you're right; they have a, a, a joking relationship that feels authentic in a way that sometimes these relationships in cartoons in general, but even just in the 80s 
never really felt. So this was not only strong for 1985 cartoon, but it's strong for 1985 television period, I feel. And for me, one of the things that I look for in this, and a lot of the problems I've had with anime sometimes is the treatment of black characters and mm-hmm. how they're drawn. And one of the things that Robotech did that I still like that is still, you can call revolutionary today is that Claudia was a dark skinned black woman. Mm-hmm. So it, it sort of like stripped away the colorism that you sometimes see in a lot of television. Like right now, for instance, even if you just go look at wheel of time, there's a lot of colorism in that mm-hmm. or game of thrones and i could go on and on mm-hmm. but that was like a darkson character who was brilliant strong and was like moving stuff along in the plot yeah absolutely i i always have of the characters in robotech claudia has always been really high up there and just characters i like and then we sort of also get the introduction of min may who is some people's favorite character this anime is controversial. Yeah, yeah. I I am not a huge fan of the Minmay, but that is just me. So uh I'm thinking of Minmay a bit. So so I mean her arc ultimately is she's a waitress who becomes a star, and as a result, her stardom allows her to take on she becomes almost instantly famous and then people men obsess about her throughout the show uh and um on the one hand she's kind of an annoying character who's obsessed with marriage and has very childlike mannerisms but a she is a child which opens up different concerning problems Mm -hmm. Uh, but she's like you know she's a teenager she's like 16 i think uh so i mean it's the fact that she acts like a young adult doesn't bother me as much, I think, at least as like, time's gone on. But also, she does have this interesting arc of how the you know fame is the double-edged sword. And um, you know, there's there's points where she's like, I don't really want to do this anymore because I'm caught up in this machine now. And I don't this isn't what I wanted to do. And I don't necessarily feel like what I'm putting out there matches my values. So there is some interesting uh, play with that dynamic, but it's so weirdly jammed into a show that's not about any of these things that I think it's one of the reasons why people, I, and it sounds like you bounce off of it, but I also bounce off of it a degree too. It's like, this could be interesting, but it feels like it's a constant digression from the rest of the show. So I am about 80% on board with everything that you said. Mm-hmm. The other 20% is I don't necessarily think her points are going against the show. That's sort of more of the constant ongoing B plot because the show itself is built so that it has a wider base appeal. So you've got all the war aspect for people that are really into that. Then you have the romance aspects for people that are into that. I guess for me, my issues with the character is the, the inconsistency because sometimes you have the character being, um, a semi-strong person fighting for what they want, and then it co- and then almost immediately flips back to a more childlike demeanor. And that constant back and forth through all the episodes seems to run counterintuitive to the concept of the serialized television show that we're watching, while all the other characters seem to like occasionally stumble, but they continue to progress forward and change, while her character seems somewhat more stagnated. That's fair. Um, I-, I think the reason why I said it, it, it jars is because... Um, there already are some, let's say, C-plots of the consequences this war is having with the people on Earth and the people of Cross City. Uh, so it shows the the cost of war in, I, I feel like it could have been a more compelling way. Um, and so it seems weird when like, okay, you know, we've, uh, these horrible things have happened. Um, we're, we're trying to survive. So let's have a concert. You know, <laughs> it seems... <laughs> Like like an odd shift, and I get I get the whole idea of um, now, let's try to and like things are normal. Let's try to put things as fast normal as possible. I will say like let me let me tell you. Sorry, sorry, to interrupt. One thing while while we're on that point, when I was deployed in Iraq, one of the big things they would do is they would bring over stars and celebrities, and they would put on performances for soldiers and everything else, even when we were in the middle of a war zone, to sort of help keep up morale okay. to make people think okay. about like back home. 
and to sort of keep like that fighting spirit up up and going okay because it is really isolating and intense to be away from everything that you know in another country fighting a war for good or bad reasons okay now that you say that i think that's that's fair and I can also see why the writers may have felt like they didn't need to fill in that gap because it was probably for them still relatively recent and therefore it's like, oh, everyone look at what it's going for here. And and whereas I was missing that piece. So, okay, I think that's fair. That's fair. But I do agree with you. Her character growth is in fits and spurts and often rolls back. So that that is, I think that's my personal crux with the character. That and I think I would have liked to hear heard more in different songs. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. The same song over and over again. <laughs> but each of their own. Right. And so the reason that the episode is also called Booby Trap is that as they're finally getting the SDF one up and ready, they're trying to test out everything. It sends out this big, massive sort of beam into space. And Global realizes that like this is a Van Alien ship. It looks like they set up a trap in the ship that we stumbled into how could we not have thought of that? And I was thinking, I was watching it. That's correct. Military general of empty decades. How could you not have thought of that? Yes. But that's adult me. That wasn't like 10 year old me watching it. Well, again, that's the one thing I dig about global is that, um, he's uh, like him in the contrast with, with Lisa Hunter, we haven't talked about it yet, but, um, short version, she's effectively a second in command. Um, and she's younger than him. And I think it's noteworthy because it's clear he's struggling with, he doesn't know how to adapt his tactics to this new, new environment. And while he's a decent captain, um, there's nothing wrong with him. It kind of reminds me we're talking about with Odama in the sense that he's a bit out of his depth. And it's interesting when that bubbles up um, because there are certainly, uh, there's, there's a running gag about like he, He's not let smoke on the bridge. Um, he has a pipe, and one of his like very junior subordinates keeps yelling at him for for smoking on the bridge. But he smokes whenever he's nervous. So you have these interesting, very human moments of him almost unconsciously reaching for the pipe and getting yelled at by and and by a younger, you know, someone who's way beneath him in the chain of command. And it's played for laughs, but it's also. It's empathetic, right? It's like, you know, there are times where you, you don't realize you're doing something because it's a, a soothing gesture or something happening because you just are at a loss. So it was interesting to me that Global is not instantly uh, an amazingly good captain. He he stumbles and makes and makes mistakes. And a lot of they're mistakes. not because he's an idiot. It's because he's because there are th- times when he's also really smart and makes some really hard calls that are the right call. But he also makes some bad calls. And that's interesting. And as you've touched on, touched on her. Lisa Hayes is the other primary main character mm-hmm. who is his second in command. She is kind of a great character study, actually, as you see yeah. like her progress throughout the show also and the decisions and things that she has to make and trying to figure out how she wants to move things along. Mm-hmm. And for the episode itself, when it finally gets going, the Zentradi, who are the alien species, sort of the alien race, jumps in and starts attacking Earth she is one of the ones that's still issuing out and sending out all the troops. And that's where you get to actually see the Veritex even flying around sort of transform into these fighting ships. Some of them are like robots. Some of them are still planes. Some of them are sort of like that halfway point. Mm-hmm. And it sort of reveals, and it's a big secret that they've kept to themselves. It's sort of been like a, a top secret project. And Rick gets uh, assigned into one of the ships to go out because Lisa thought he was one of the pilots there. Right. Which again, I mean that the whole kind of chaos of war thing. Um, they, they these Veritex are still, like I said, top secret. They're very new. People are going to make mistakes. People aren't going to be entirely, especially my understanding in the high security information. It's not always clear who has what clearance. Um, so there are times where people are inadvertently allowed access to things they shouldn't have access to, or vice versa. People are kept out of things that they should have access to. So again, it feels very authentic in a way that, you know, and jumping ahead a little bit, um, there are that the first, the first fight does not go well. <laughs> no, not at all. Which is again, interesting, I think. And so that's sort of where 
almost where booby traps are vents. And one of the problems with trying to do the trying to do this season, at least for me, while we're still sorting it out, is which are the best episodes to have folks watch and not overwhelm them with saying, you should just watch the whole thing except for these three episodes because it is so amazing. Right. And that's one of the reasons why the second episode, while it could be considered important, wasn't quite as important as episode three, which was Spaceful, where they actually do like the the massive jump that sort of becomes the impetus of the show for a long time. Mm-hmm. And for folks who are curious, remarkably enough, Rick, Mimei, and Lisa don't die right here. <laughs> Shocked, I know. And you get to like the starts of like a love, a love sort of a a romance triangle going on. Mm-hmm. Primarily right now with just Rick and Minmay and the joys of trying to figure out how one would actually pilot a transforming ship that you've never been in before. Right. And so for for Spacefold, what they do is the ship itself actually ends up transporting away. And this is one of the points where a global has to make a very hard decision mm-hmm. because when the ship transports, it transports itself and I think like a large chunk, if not the entire of Macross Island. Yep. Way out in the space. And so the people that are on Macross Island aren't protected like the people inside of the SDF-1. Mm-hmm. So you've just transported an entire island of people out around Pluto equivalently in the cold dead of space and you've saved maybe, what, uh, 70,000 people? Mm-hmm. Leaving who knows how many else to die in the cold of space. Yep. And like that is a shocking thing to see for like episode three of a show, especially if you're a kid watching it. You may not quite, they don't linger on all the people, but that realization is still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not dwelled on. It's not, look at all these corpses flying through space. You don't see any of that. Uh, but they don't flinch from the fact that this is a loss. Uh, Global, like, like we said before, he made the best call in a really bad situation. He saved the most possible people he could have. He's not happy with his decision because he still lost way more than he wanted to. And then most of the rest of the episode is sort of uh, following along with Rick and Minmay as a build their bond and you get a better idea of what type of character Rick is as like the spaceship gets a little puncture in it and he's trying to figure out how to keep her safe and she's talking about getting home to her family. And they catch a fish in space. <laughs> well, at least it's not a space vampire. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's funny because that collection of scenes, I always go back and forth on it. Um, for me, it was... Like the very first time I was like, I'm not going to like Min May. I can just tell, right? Um, because she's at her most, I don't know what's going on. And I'm trying desperately to bring this back to something I could possibly understand. And, but, you know, or as I got older, it's like people when they're stressed out, this is exactly what they do. You know, they, they could, they could be, they're often angry or irritated they make unreasonable demands because in some part of their brain, they're trying to just force the situation back to something they can parse. Uh, so I, I'm a lot more sympathetic now that I'm older watching this. Um, uh, I mean, it plays into the whole, again, my first thought is like women need to be married to have identity thing, but the rest of the show makes it pretty clear. That's just men may that things that way. The other female characters do not have that problem. <laughs> uh, they have different problems, but you know it, it, it's a little change. Like, I, you know, would I make a beautiful wife? And it's just like, oh man, I just don't, I don't, I don't feel comfortable with this whole conversation. I don't get it. <laughs> uh, but you're right. I mean, uh, uh, what it really does is Rick is trapped in a cargo bay. First of all, he's trapped in space in a ship that's not designed to fly in space. He finds a safe harbor, then immediately does what he can to make that place livable. Um, and then just gets thrown problem after problem on top of being with a girl who does not want to be there. Uh, and he didn't intend to bring with him on this. You know, there was just going to be a, just a joyride. Uh, and so you see how resourceful he is. You see uh, how tolerant he is How and how quick he is to adapt, which is important because he screwed the pooch on piloting the Veritech the first time. So when he's doing better next time, it's built – 
the work has been put in. It's the, okay, this is someone who's smart and adaptable. I buy that he has now learned how to pilot this highly secretive robotic device. And the other big thing to remember about Rick, much like Minmay, Rick is maybe 17. Mm-hmm. And so he's still thrust in the situation and still somewhat of a kid sort of working his way to becoming an adult and trying to figure out all of this stuff while doing that. Right. So then we jump ahead to first contact. Sure. And so first contact is one of probably one of the most important episodes mm-hmm. because right now you have, they've sort of faces and trotty at a distance. And during this course in time, Rick is sort of like learning more about and becomes part of the military. You get more insight into the characters in first contact has them captured and you've got a new character, Ben. So you've got Lisa, Rick and Ben. And I think Max is there. They're all, Mm-hmm. Captured yeah. and the Zentradi themselves are more. Because this like is a scene where Max, Max, the amazing scene of Max in his robot suit wearing an outfit in disguise. I just love that scene so much. <laughs> <laughs> and so the Zentradi are primarily interrogating Rick, Lixa, and Ben to find out more about, as they call us, the Micronians. Mm-hmm. And that's when you learn that they are disgusted by human affection. <laughs> that their race has evolved past living with with male and females living together and having kids produced the old-fashioned way. Mm-hmm. And they go back to saying something about protoculture. Right. And protoculture is kind of the big... Protoculture is the big thing that kind of threads all these shows together, right? It is, it is the glue that holds the universe together, or three mm-hmm. universes, technically. Mm-hmm. Um, and they ask, basically, Le- they ask Lisa and one of them to kiss so they can see what that's like, and they're utterly disgusted by it. Like, <laughs> that's the worst thing I've ever seen. Away with them. It's, it, it's, it's so great, because they're like, okay. And, the, and the fact, even the acting is like, sh- I guess, show us this thing. And they're, like, they're bracing for it. And then they give like the tamest kiss you could possibly see. And they're like, oh, God, it's horrible. <laughs> it's just, and it, it's like the, the moment where you realize, yes, this is a show targeted to teenage boys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, kissing. Ew. Uh, and one of the things that we probably should have touched on is that the Nintrati themselves are equivalent to the size of the Veritex. Yes. So when they call us Micronians, there's a reason why we're called Micronians. Right. And that's why Max can run around and disguise his robot form because his robot form is – because for the the, um, uh, the Centrati, their robot forms are just really basically armored suits. They're just putting them on themselves. Um, so uh, when Max is around in his suit, he could pass as a Centrati in armor uh, because they're his equivalent size. But it's still basically a giant robot in the trench coat, which I just think is great. <laughs> so we should probably touch on those two characters uh max is a an ace pilot and ben is kind of a a jerk yeah kind of a, a, a slimy not quite a coward but certainly um not willing to always help out the way the rest of not as heroic as the other characters he, he's not a person you want to take on a long trip and Max, in the end, helps them all escape. And so they've had their first sort of encounter with his intro- with a first in-person encounter with the Zentradi. They've learned something about protoculture. They've learned something about the Zentradi society that is going to thread throughout the rest of the show mm-hmm. and sort of becomes an actual weapon they'll eventually use against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to jump over to Big Brother, unless there's something else you'd like to touch on here. No, it, it, we're, we're kind of reaching a stage where we kind of have to hit the, the big beats, I think. so. Yeah. Unless we want like a two-hour thing just about each individual Robotech show. But then I would say we should have watched the whole series and we make each one into like a four-hour podcast. Oh, my God. The whole podcast just becomes the Robotech podcast. <laughs> um, so, Feral Big Brother. You sort of get back. Rick has been hurt, so he's been in the hospital for a while. You've got Roy convincing Minmay to go visit Rick. And you get more of a dynamic between Claudia and Roy, a little bit of like touching on their things and what they're trying to do together. Mm-hmm. And you get and you get to see how much Roy really cares for Rick too, and he wants wants his life to be as good as it can be. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it's little things like um, uh, 
he makes a comment about, you know, he wants to get back to, to uh, have some of her famous pineapple salad. <clears throat> and it's, it's such a, a, a human moment. Like, you know, she makes this dish that he knows he likes. Um, and he wants to come back and experience that with her. And it's, it's, it's a small little thing, but it, it, it helps to sell that these two have had a long-term relationship. And another thing is, it's really interesting to me is that their relationship contrasted with uh, the love triangles going on between uh, Rick and May and, and eventually Lisa is that that's kind of the new young passionate love, right? Romeo and Juliet style, burn hard, burn fierce love. And then contrasting it with this very adult relationship, they, they are, they're still 100% in love, but it's, it's less about stealing kisses and grossing out giant aliens and more about, <laughs> I just want to come home to have dinner with you, which, um, you know, as, as folks who have both been married for a long time, I, I love coming home to my family and having dinner with them. That, yeah. that means a lot to me, much more my older age. So it, it to me sells as, uh, a very authentic relationship that's had some history. Um, and it, it, I don't know. I, I just, I, I really feel like it's one of the better romances because it doesn't try to make, make, make it feel like it needs to be steamy and sexual in order to be relevant, deep, loving relationship. And the other thing is this whole time you've sort of had Claudia ribbing Lisa to. Yes make her move or figure out how she want who she's what she's going to do instead of just sitting there pining away. Mm -hmm. And like that also is a demonstration of the character of the more relationship advanced character trying to help someone else realize what they want and lead them to where they potentially want to go or at least giving them like road signs and saying, "Hey, this is what you want. If this is where you're going to be happy, maybe you should try to do that." Mm -hmm. And we also get our incredible dogfight in this episode. Mm. And you get to see Max in action. You can see Roy. You can see all of them in action while Rick is still stuck in the hospital. And Min May comes to see Rick. Mm -hmm. And they sort of have their, their, I would say, a tenderness is more of what it boils down to. Mm -hmm. And you see the the weirdness that Min May is going through from like her celebrity and everything of the being a star and how difficult it was for her to get away to come see him. Mm-hmm. And again, I mean, it's like uh, I, I gave Min May some stick earlier, but I mean, just the whole moment of her falling asleep. It's the I, I'm exhausted. I've had a really rough day, but I'm still trying to make time to come here and see you. And then just zonking the hell out. It's like I again, I feel like I've been in moments like that where it's like I, I really, I really want to be present. I just can't. Um, so I mean, like. Some people have argued like that shows how selfish she is. And like, and sometimes, man, you're just so exhausted. You can't help it, right? It's like, I'm just going to sit down here. It's going to take a minute. And then next thing you know, you wake up eight hours later. It happens. And sometimes um, it's just the effort of getting there. Exactly, that is, right. That's what's important. She, With everything going on, she still tried to make time to see him in the hospital. And you, in the end, you have the fight where they realize that the Centrality are actually targeting Max. So Max has to leave. And Roy gets hurt in the middle of the fight. Mm -hmm. You don't quite know it yet, but you do see like a weird sort of flinch that he does. And then he goes to have his dinner with Claudia. Mm -hmm. And you have her telling him that like, where I, I pulled like the iconic line from was from this scene. The two mm -hmm. of them is it's close, it's warm, but you see that lingering doom that's about to happen just in the, in the air. And it is incredible. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it um, I was saying before how the, the relationships contrast each other. This is the perfect example of that. Min May made the time to see Rick in the hospital. Um, Roy, basically with his, you know, with all of his energy he had left, wanted to come to have his dinner. You see that same sense of you have to make time for the people you love. Even if it means holding a guitar in front of you. He knew he was going to die either way, and he wanted his mm -hmm. last minutes to be with the person that he loved. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's also the scene where you get to see Lisa come to tell Rick, which in and of itself is one of the things where 
if there's a tragedy in your life that happens, hearing it from certain people doesn't make it better, but it makes it slightly more tolerable. Yeah. And I think that is one of the moments that starts re-cementing the Lisa and Rick relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good point uh, uh, to talk about another trope of anime that people who aren't familiar with it may be surprised by, um, which is the lack of spoiler culture. Um, anime have no problem telling you the big twist like in the title, like in this case. Um, although it got uh, uh, dumped, it got not dumped down. It got, it got reduced in impact a little bit, uh, so it wasn't completely clear. Um, but also, even in the next, the, the, the teaser for the upcoming episodes, they will often just spoil huge changes in the upcoming episode. Uh, and it, I, 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 again, we weren't going to talk about uh, Japanese culture in that regard, but as an American, I initially found it very odd, right? Of like, why would you tell me this big thing? Because I think Rick's de- or, um, um, his, his death gets it's spoiled like in the previous, the upcoming episode thing. Uh, but watching back i actually kind of appreciate it because it's the well i gotta see what happens i gotta see how it gets to how that happens right um <laughs> it, it, you know it's like wait he dies i gotta see what goes what go, how that's gonna how that's gonna work out um so when uh not rick roy uh, when roy dies so um it's it's interesting it's something it takes getting used to because it's like why would you do that um uh, uh famously um in one of the japanese uh, transformers uh cartoons um, the, the very beginning of the episode is farewell Optimus Prime. And it's like, well, I gee, what's, wonder what's going to happen in this episode. <laughs> he's going to go on a little vacation to Cybertron. Right. Yeah. He's going to get, you know, just going to go sunning for a while. Um, uh, and like the next episode was like, you know, the, the death of the, the double prime. I mean, it was, it was, it was very clear what was happening, but it's like, okay, well now I got to know what happens. Uh, so it's, it's a bit more about the journey than the twist, but you know, it, there's there's still a lot that – the idea that this was a twist that was spoiled is one piece of it. But also in 85, characters don't die like this. They just don't. So even if you knew it was coming, I think in the back of your head you're still going, okay, but he'll be better, right? Because that's how these <laughs> things work. And no, he's dead. <laughs> that, that That happens. So it it didn't really diminish from the impact, even if you knew it was coming up, because you didn't really believe that was really what was going to happen. And so that is actually a death they linger on, which goes back to how you had all the people on Macross Island die, and it Mm -hmm. wasn't lingered on, but you sort of felt it. This is one singular person that you've grown to potentially care about die right there on the screen before you. Yeah. So as a kid, that is devastating, like Mm -hmm. utterly. Think about all the kids that went to see Transformers, the movie, and Optimus Prime yeah. dies in it. Yeah. That was another this huge moment. Is on par with that. Mm-hmm. In fact, it, um, the Optimus Prime thing is, is interesting because uh, that happens. Um, and Hasbro saw sales of Optimus Prime, to- Optimus Prime toys drop, uh, which they expected. It's like, well, he's, a new to- he's the not the latest toy, so we'll get rid of it. But then they spiked back up again. Um, and so initially they had plans in the GI Joe movie to have uh, Duke die. <laughs> uh, but there was, um, in the initial screening, there was such outrage from parents that they eventually wrote in a scene where he's in the hospital and he's fine. Um, cause it's only so, a place for him to get a serpent to the heart. Right. Yeah. That's, that's not how that works. You know, it's just, you know, just, just, you know, rest for a couple of days and you'll be fine again. Um, so it's well in the army they just tell us to drink water it's fine <laughs> just rub some spit in it um it, so i mean we're talking about these big impacts but also they were so big that other shows flinched from them after a while so i mean like because this is this is 85 transformers movies was 87 and, and it was like okay this is a bit much we have to kind of go back but also there's a a, a Weird thing with, with Transformers because they're robots. Okay, well, we can see robots blowing up. We can see robots ripped apart. Humans, that's different. Um, so it's still subversive at this point to, like I said, have a character. And I'm going on about this, but it's really hard to overstate this. 
because this is the first real big moment. Not only is it serialized, but things will change. I think that's the biggest piece of all of this. And the impact, since you're talking about serialization of it, is felt in every episode because up to, for the past 18 episodes, you've seen this character on screen and now gone. Mm -hmm. And Claudia is changed as a result of that. And that does not go away. It keeps coming up. And as we're, we're getting close to our hour marker, mm -hmm. I'm going to sort of combine episodes 29 and 36 okay. while also doing a little bit of a retconning. Because one of the things I mentioned is that it's hard to figure out which episodes necessarily highlight. Mm -hmm. So I'm also going to pull in episode 27. Okay. So for folks, if you want to pause and go watch episode 27, you can. But I skipped it, but we're still going to, it's going to be, it's going to impact these other two episodes also. Is in episode 27 is where you have a massive Zentradi fleet attack Earth yeah. after some of the other Zentradi have micronized themselves. They've sort of joined Earth's side. They were swayed by Minmay singing, by Earth culture. And so you sort of have hu humanity and some, some of them working together compared to an, ex an external Zentradi feed, I want to say it was like 4 million ships attacking Earth. Mm. And they obliterate humanity. Yep. There's maybe 100,000 people left after the mm. war on Earth. 100,000. That's it. And a couple thousand Zentradi. But they use the SDF-1 and they destroy the fleet of like 4 million ships. And what that does is that sends this telepathic message through space to the Robotech masters and you get reveal of who the villains are for the Robotech series mm -hmm. this part of it right and um, again this is the uh, the stakes we talked about um, because it, it's not like oh well and then we'll get better um, no it, it, the earth remains devastated that 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 is something does not go away it doesn't change and so it shows you the actual horror that is war. And I know that as adults now, we're sort of talking about it like it's it's a big thing because it is, but also think about it as if you were a kid. You're maybe between, we'll say, 8 and 15 watching this compared mm -hmm. to all the other animes you saw. This isn't gummy bears. Right. You're seeing all these people dead. And they actually show like there, I think there's a little girl on the screen with like a parent and they just sort of poof, turned to ash like Thanos snapped in a big mm -hmm. flash of light. Yep. And you have Earth forces rallying to win the day? <laughs> to, to, to ameliorate the damage, really. <laughs> and the Robotech Masters themselves start talking about protoculture, and they make start making their way to Earth to get the protoculture. Mm-hmm. Right, and I think at this point it's been implied that protoculture is something that's underpinning Robotech, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, and this moves, and so around this point we've moved about two years. Is going to about a two or three year window is going to happen during this time period, also, mm -hmm. where we start trying to like rebuild Earth with our hundred thousand people. Uh, Max and Miriam. Miriam was a Zentradi ace pilot who originally had a vengeance for Max. And they sort of fall in love and they have a kid, mm -hmm. Dana Sterling. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then and that is the lead into the next chunk of Robotech, which is the Masters. And you get a solid end of the relation of the romance triangle between Lisa, Rick, and Minmay because they get Earth gets attacked by the last Zentradi rebels on the planet. They get their ship up and working. And during the attack, but right before the attack, Global had promoted. Lisa, they had they built the SDS, SDF two, mm -hmm. and during this last battle, the SDF one and two are destroyed to destroy to kill the others in Trotty that were ramming them, mm -hmm. and everyone aboard those ships die except for Lisa, who is put in an escape pod by Global, who survives. And you end mm -hmm. this series with like sort of Rick and Lisa holding each other, looking and saying, we need to go into the stars. We will build the SDF-3. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Uh, and, and actually, that's um, one thing we kind of glossed over, but uh, uh, another thing that was really kind of wild for a show at this time is that the Zentradi were not a unified force. Uh, but like you mentioned, um, several Zentradi defected uh, and, and just 
straight up join humanity. Uh, some in their normal form, some get micronized so that they become the same size as humans. Uh, and even during the cutaway scenes with with the various uh, Zentradi leaders, there's a lot of, of conflict between the leadership. And some of that was um, established, certainly uh, show, uh, other uh, shows at the time had lots of infighting within the, the villainous ranks because you know evil can't possibly work together. But the idea that people would just switch sides was actually pretty wild at the time. And the thing is, you see that most of Zentradi, they actually sort of, Hate to hate to use this word like this, but um, they humanize Zentradi, or we can say they Zentradi's eyes to Zentradi, <laughs> to show that right. it was their culture that led them to do a lot of the things they're doing, mm-hmm. and they didn't see that they were they didn't have the opportunity to to experience other opportunities, and once those are presented to them, they started thinking in a wider scope. It goes back to the thing that when you the one of the reasons you travel is to experience new things because it broadens your horizons and gives you more opportunities to grow and become a better Zentradi or person. Mm-hmm. Yep. Indeed. And that's what happens. And that's why Minmay's singing was so important because it helps sway them. And that crux is like incredible for the show is like this under underlined thing that goes all the way throughout it. Minmay singing for our troops. And then she's singing for all the troops. Which makes more sense to me now. But yeah, and that's, just the first 36 episodes. <laughs> Had to condense a little bit there towards the end. <laughs> right. No, but I mean, and that's, so um, we're going to spend three episodes talking about Robotech because there's just so much here. And it makes sense because there's pretty clean, I don't want to say clean breaks because uh, they actually do a good job of trying to move. But I mean, there's, there's three eras of Robotech and it's even marketed as three eras. You can buy like DVD box sets. that will have the uh, Robotech Man Cross, Robotech the Masters, Robotech New Generation. So, I mean, it's not unusual to divide it in this way. Uh, but um, so unlike with the uh, space opera versions, we're actually going to kind of have to go through the whole season, quote unquote, uh, because there's just so much here. And, and if we just did like we usually do, and here's the first kind of dozen episodes, you would have no clue how the rest of the show pans out. So we kind of have to really go through, walk through each of these in, a, in a, at least somewhat. I mean, obviously we're skimming over a lot of stuff, um, but I think more than with the space opera stuff, it's one of those you probably should watch a good chunk of this. So, so if you're really worried about spoilers, but again, the show will spoil you. So. Who's to maybe say? we just recall it. Maybe we rename the season, call it the season of spoilers. <laughs> right. Just, just get it all in now. Cause we're going to tell you everything. Uh, so yeah. Did you have any final thoughts about Macross? I, I think I pretty much stated it. I, I love Macross. Like mm-hmm. this series is what got me into anime. And as a kid, I love science fiction more than fantasy. And to see something of this depth and intensity and maturity, shot at me as a kid who was I was old for my age even at one so by the time I started watching this I was like an adult looking for kid adult entertainment and this was it I would have loved to have seen this as a live action show if it could have been done brought across because I'm willing to bet then it would not have been looked at as just for kids it would have been looked at as something that would have been embraced by a larger wider adult audience with more money right yeah and honestly, I, I agree with a lot of that. I mean, um, uh, I got this much more sporadically. Uh, I, I didn't really follow through. And so I kind of fell off right around the time Mac Ross was wrapping up. As the downside of this format is because it's such a clear definitive ending, even though I tried very hard to make it clear there's more to come, it's really easy to kind of fall off at this point if you're saying, okay, well, I'm not going to keep watching. Um but you're right. It was it was kind of a, a, a mind blowing thing for for young me. I mean, at this point, I was 11, and so I was exactly the right target age for stuff like this. And, and I loved the concept of feeling like I was watching more adult television, even though obviously it was still geared for kids and toys. Uh, so that feeling of like I, I feel like I was being talked down to. I think it's a big part of what the appeal of it is. Like, oh, this this respects my intelligence to a degree. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, there are things that don't. But I mean, for eleven year old kid in the eighties, this is you know highly intelligent <laughs> stuff. So, do you want to let them know what we're going to do next next yeah. time if they can't? Uh, so we're going to do we're going to do uh, the masters. Um, uh, 
it might be ordered differently depending on which service you're using, but um, I'm going to use the original numbering. So it's uh, episode 38, which is False Start. Episode 44, The Trap. Episode 47, Outsiders. Episode 48, Deja Vu. Episode 59, The Invid Connection. And episode 60, Catastrophe. Um, I'm still, I'm actually relatively new to this, but one thing in my kind of watching through is that this has more kind of like Buck Rogers in the sense of there are lots of two-part-ish episodes going on. So that's why we're kind of wrapping up with, with four episodes that are close to each other because it's a little harder to pull out key moments because Macross is just, and then this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens. This is much more okay here. A couple of things happen here. That's pretty contained. A couple of things happen here. Um, and we're going to skip the first episode 37 because it's just a clip show. I want to talk about the clip show, but it's just a clip show. You don't have to watch that to understand anything. 38 will get you everything you need to know. Maybe we put a our stamp for the entire season saying that spoilers, we're going to be doing the formatting things a little bit differently because it is the anime and we have to mm-hmm. make changes so we don't have to say it every episode. And we're doing this weekly now. So you can expect these yes. to pop up every week. Right. Um, so if again, we meant this to be kind of a book club. Um, so if you actually do want to watch the episodes, uh, just Put it on pause or, you know, just don't download the episode, watch them and then listen to us whenever you're ready. We'll still be around. Um, but these are so, there's so much here uh, uh, that we agreed that it was worth just going through, spending over three hours just talking about Rortec because there's just so much here. And then we're going to talk about other stuff. We won't spoil what's coming up, but I mean, there are other shows coming up that we're going to also have at least one more that's having a similar deep dive on. Uh, so it, this is a very different format um, and it's going to be faster, but we're hoping you'll have just as much fun this time around as we did last season. So Eddie, where can folks find you out in the world? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Pugsteady. That's P-U-G-S-T-E-A-D-Y. You can find my website at Pugsteady.com or you can find me on uh, the Darker Hue Discord where I'm usually posting memes. <laughs> Um, if folks are looking for me, you can find me in the Dark Who Discord when I'm usually talking about Haunted West or try, that I'm trying to write scenarios for Gen Con. Mm-hmm. You can also find me on Twitter at Darker underscore Hue. And you can also go to the website that's darkhuestudios.com. And for folks that are looking for a little extra fun, how about you add us on Twitter about what your favorite mech is? Yeah, that'd be good. I need to buy some moon models soon. So that's a good, a good thing to listen to what people are excited about. All right, folks. Catch you next time. Bye.